0: This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton.
2: And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of Alert, we'll start off the show with Canadian Dimensions Montreal correspondent, Andrea Levy, who speaks with Gedan Levy of Haaretz, on the occasion of his cross-country talk. We'll also be speaking with Iraq war deserter Joshua Key about Canada's policies surrounding war resistors on the eve of a critical vote in the House of Commons. And finally, we'll hear from Jim Petrus on the Venezuelan elections.
1: going to start the show with Around the Left in seven days, Alert Radio's weekly roundup of events around the country that we wish to bring to your attention. The third annual Winnipeg Radical Book Fair will be held at the Broadway Neighbourhood Centre on September 25th and 26th. The fair will kick off with the launch of 500 years of Indigenous resistance with author and activist Gord Hill at Mondragon in Winnipeg on September 24th at 7pm. Go to canadiandimension.com for more details.
2: Gidon Levy is a journalist with the Israeli newspaper Haaretz and has been covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank for the past 20 years he's fiercely critical of Israel's policies towards Palestine from September 20th to 26th Levy will be on a speaking tour hitting seven Canadian cities delivering a lecture entitled the punishment of Gaza he will speak in Montreal Ottawa Toronto Mississauga Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. The tour is sponsored by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. For details, go to cjpme.org or the events page at canadiandimension.com.
1: Adolf Reed is a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania and will be speaking at Ryerson University on September 24th at 7:30. Reed has been at the center of political debates in the U.S. on the impact of the economic crisis, especially for African Americans, and the limits and failings of the Obama administration. He has long lamented the paralysis of the U.S. left, arguing that the crisis of the U.S. left is not one of ideas, but of organizing. On the 24th, come here, Professor Reed deliver the lecture, Race, Class, and Crisis, What New Possibilities for the U.S. Left.
2: A three-part study series covering Bolivia in Transition will be held at the Center for Social Justice in Toronto beginning Sunday, September 26th at 2 o'clock p.m. The first session will examine the 10 years since Bolivia's water wars. The following two sessions are on October 17th and 31st. These two sessions cover extractive industries and Bolivia's internal challenges, and the U.S. offensive against Bolivia and the Latin American peoples. Email Toronto Bolivia Solidarity at gmail.com for more info.
1: On October 2nd, join women in the Downtown Eastside Women's Center Power of Women Group in the fourth annual March for Women's Housing and March Against Poverty. Meet at the Downtown Eastside Women's Center in Vancouver at 2 p.m. Everyone, including men, are welcome.
2: This Thanksgiving weekend, support migrant workers and allies who will be marching from Leamington to Windsor, Ontario, to call attention to the living and working conditions of migrant workers who grow and process our food, especially for holidays of overconsumption like Thanksgiving. Migrant workers are marching to demand status, an end to exorbitant recruitment fees, better housing, safe working conditions, and an end to racism and sexism in the workplace. You can help by providing a donation, marching with the workers, or spreading the word of this march. To register as a demonstrator or to get more info, email pilgrimage2freedom at gmail.com. And that has been Around the Left for September twenty third, 2010. Now stay tuned for Andrea Levy and her conversation with Gidon Levy.
0: I'm Andrea Levy, and I'm with Alert Radio, and I'm here today with Gidon Levy, the well-known journalist with the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, who is currently on a speaking tour of Canada to talk about his new book, The Punishment of Gaza. Mr. Levy, first let me say that it's a great privilege to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. I know many of our listeners have read your columns in Haaretz (coughs) and know you as a courageous voice of dissent within the Israeli media those of us in canada jews and non-jews who were opposed to the occupation and protest the mistreatment of palestinians are frequently accused of singling israel out for censure just for the record as an israeli and a journalist how do you suggest we respond to that
3: charge
4: israel is treated in the world like no other country this is true there are countries who have more brutal occupations in their past There are much worse regimes than the Israeli regime. There are much more cruel wars in the world. But Israel gains also a lot out of its special status. Israel who claims it is part of the West and part of the democratic family of the world has to pay also a price for it. So it's not only that the world is more critical about Israel. Yes, the world is more critical about Israel. This must be admitted. But in the same time, the world also treats Israel so different than any other third world country, for example, former communist countries and others. So if you want to become part of this family of the civilized world, you have to pay a price. And the price is that Israel is more criticized than Sudan. And I don't want to be compared to Sudan, and I don't want not to be criticized because Sudan is not criticized. Mm -hmm. So I'm very proud that the world is treating us uh, in a critical way. And let's remember when there were the Oslo uh, agreements, the whole world was applauding to Israel. So Israel cannot blame the world for anything. Don't forget that Israel gains more international support than and financial support
0: than any other country in the world. I know that you're sympathetic to the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and you've defended its legitimacy in print. Do you think BDS is having any effect? And if this type of economic pressure were to mount, could it have any significant impact?
4: This is quite a complex issue because I'm first of all supporting the legitimacy of this weapon. The official Israel should support the legitimacy of this weapon because Israel is one of the biggest users of this weapon. What is the siege on Gaza? What is the boycott of Hamas, if not sanctions? What is the call to the world to put sanctions on Iran? So Israel cannot claim it's not a legitimate weapon. Sure, it is a legitimate weapon. Israel is using it and, and again and again. The question is not if it's a legitimate weapon, the question is, is it an effective weapon? Mm -hmm. Because BDS cannot become a goal. It should be only a mean, Mm -hmm. not a goal. Now, me personally, I'm in a a dedicated position. For example, I boycott personally any products of the settlements. So I can call anyone else to boycott products of the settlements, but I do not boycott Israel. I live in Israel. I buy Israeli products, I do everything from within, from inside. I am not in a position to call others to boycott Israel, and therefore I always refrained and made this division, this separation between understanding the boycott, legitimizing it, but never calling other people boycott Israel, because this is would be Hippocratic from my point of view as an Israeli. Now the question is, will it be effective? There is one assumption which is for sure very well based and this is that the Israelis don't pay any price for the occupation. The second assumption is that as long as they don't pay for the occupation, nothing will change from within the Israeli society. The problem is, what will happen if they would pay for the occupation and would they make the connection between the occupation and the price that they are going to pay? That's the main problem. Because once when they paid, namely in the Second Intifada, Israelis paid a hell of a price for the occupation, they never made the connection between the terror and the occupation, between the sanctions and the payment and the punishment, that they are punished, and the reason. So if there will not be understood in Israel that sanctions are there to punish Israel for the occupation and if the occupation will be over, the sanctions will be then it will not be effective, it will just make Israel more nationalistic Mm -hmm. and push Israel more to the corner. On the other hand, if Israelis, maybe this will open their minds. Until now, it just makes the Israelis more nationalistic and more believing in this myth that the world is Mm anti-Semitic. And then comes the conclusion, we can do whatever we want because anyhow the world is against us, so why would we care about the world? So it's, it's really an open
5: question.
0: You've talked about the dissolution of the Israeli left. How and why has this come about? And what has happened to the constituency for critical thinking about Israeli state policy?
4: The Israeli left, the Israeli peace camp, totally crashed in 2000, after the failure of the Camp David uh, conference, and the mis, the lie, the Prime Minister Barack had spread that there is no Palestinian partner. And after the suicide bomber and the second intifada, the exploding buses in the streets of Tel Aviv. By this stage, there was no meaningful peace camp left, which makes a big question mark. How solid was it from the first place? We are left now with some small, very devoted, very courageous groups, but unfortunately very marginal. The 400,000 people who went to demonstrate against the massacre in Sabah and Shatila in 1882, if today the same event would have taken place, there wouldn't be 400 people in the streets. Mm. This uh, makes you think, or makes me come to the conclusion, not to expect any change from within the Israeli society, because there is no one today in the Israeli society who can really lead a change. The mainstream is nationalistic, is right-wing, and above all, is very indifferent. Then from where can the change come? Only from the outside. Right now, only from the outside. The Israeli society is not ready for any change.
0: And from the outside, I presume you're referring particularly to the United States?
4: Mm-hmm. Almost only the United States. Or, God forbid, from a catastrophe. A catastrophe can also make a change, but I hope this will not take
0: place. You've expressed reservations about the practical possibilities for a one-state solution, and at the same time you've noted that it's becoming too late for a two-state solution.
4: Could you elaborate
0: a little on this point for our listeners?
4: The ideal solution for the, for the present, maybe not for the long-term future, but for the present, would be two separate states, two nations. Each of them deserve a state of its own and two viable states side by side would be the ideal solution. We are reaching almost what we call in football the extra time because with 300,000 settlers, the chances for a viable Palestinian state with the division between the West Bank and Gaza, between Hamas and Prada are really so minimal, if at all. Now the alternative is one state, and I think very soon the Palestinians will move to a struggle. Okay, leave your settlements, stay where you are, but it's unheard of that three and a half million people will not gain any kind of civil rights. It doesn't exist, for sure not in a democracy. So this will be the next struggle. And then we have this uh, binational state, which theoretically sounds wonderful to People's share one state, democratic, justice, equal. But I know how it will work. It will be a, an apartheid state. Because first of all, there is a gap between the two societies, let's face it. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of bad blood between the two societies, a lot of fears and hatreds, which will not vanish at once. And above all, there is a lot of racism in the Jewish society. I don't see the Jewish society being ready really to treat the Palestinians as as human beings. Our problem is that the Israeli society really dehumanizes the Palestinians totally. I don't see it changing. So it's a lose-lose situation. One solution is almost too late. The other one is not very promising. And I really don't know Another alternative but those two solutions. Mm-hmm. The third solution is continuing the eh, status quo. What was good for 42 years, maybe it will be good for another 42 years, God forbid.
0: I gather from what you write and what you've said about your vocation that you see yourself as bearing witness, as you put it alluding to another historic crime against a people to ensure that Israelis can't say they didn't know. The work that you do is indispensable and people of conscience the world over are grateful to you for doing it. But you are pessimistic Mm -hmm. about the possibility of appealing to the conscience of Israelis, and you've said that you don't know what can be done to make Israelis open their eyes. Why do you think Israelis have become so indifferent to the terrible injustice being perpetrated on the Palestinians in their name?
4: Because there are many agencies who help them to believe so. I truly believe that the occupation would not last for so long without, for example, the Israeli media. Because I, I don't think Israelis are monsters. And most of them are people with values. And there is something which happens when it comes to the occupation, that they treat it differently. They will send a rescue team to save uh, uh, victims in any earthquake and floods all over the world. And when it comes to earthquake made by their own hands, who is victims, tragic victims next door, all of a sudden this indifference and blindness. This is mainly thanks to the Israeli media, who systematically over decades is dehumanizing the Palestinians, is not covering the Israeli-Palestinian dispute in a fair way, is totally ignoring the Nakbe, the 48 catastrophe, is totally ignoring the life under the occupation and all this enables a situation which I think is unprecedented in which the occupier is not only the occupier but feels so good about himself, have so little doubts about what he's doing and above all even victimizes himself. Most of these Israelis feel as they are the victims. The occupier is a victim, I don't recall one example in history the occupier victimizes himself and say, I don't want to be the occupier they force me to do so as the late Golda Meir phrased it we will never forgive the Arabs for forcing us to shoot their children, yeah? that's the way of thinking in Israel so when all this is happening together with a systematic of system then you say why wouldn't Israeli care about the occupation he knows very little about it he doesn't want to know a lot about it he feels that human rights are well-kept in Israel, the most moral army in the world, as they all believe. And all this, without any balancing voices to tell the truth, to call for for at least raising questions, all this leads to this occupation with this wonderful feeling about ourselves as the most moral people and the chosen people.
0: Well. I hope that you can go on being that dissenting voice. I do my best. I do <laughs> and my that best. maybe others will join you <laughs> and follow your
4: example. So, as long as they will let me, I will, I will do so. Thank you very much. My pleasure.
2: And that was Andrea Levy, a Canadian Dimension Magazine's Montreal correspondent, speaking with Gadan Levy of Haaretz. This is Alert Radio, and I'm speaking with Joshua Key. Joshua Key served in Iraq in the U.S. military from April till December of 2003, and he has left that war and has been living in Canada now uh, just, just about six years. He is uh, the author of the book The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war with Iraq, and uh, he's here with me. So, uh, hello, Joshua. Hello. So, Joshua, recently in the news, there's been uh, uh, the Immigration and Citizenship uh, Minister Jason Kenney put out a missive, to a directive to all of the immigration officials across the country, essentially directing them to the fact that uh, desertion is considered a crime. You don't, uh, you don't mind being called a deserter. In fact, you would identify yourself as such. Comment on that idea, are you a criminal for deserting the iraq war
6: uh no, i'm not a criminal i got criminals are murderers and rapists uh, i i I look at as that as uh stupidity on their behalf, especially for the ones like myself and the other ones who have came to Canada. I think the last thing on our minds on on any of us is that we're criminals. you know I guess we came here for the moral and the right. Uh, I think, as far as the minister giving the authority, as far as uh, Pra's uh, humanitarian compassion grounds and sponsorship about the criminal admissibility part of them applications, I think that uh, due process will have to will have to to go through the processes. I mean, I see it as. I, I can't understand why that they would label us as criminals for doing the right and the moral thing, especially when Canada didn't get involved in Iraq, and of course it wasn't even sanctioned by the UN until I just left Iraq. Uh, so my time, 98% of my time in that country was non-sanctioned; it was completely an illegal and immoral war. Um, but I think that the criminal part is uh, absurd.
2: Now there have been commentaries uh, online and uh, in the uh, in the major uh, newspapers essentially stating the uh, de- defending what the immigration minister is saying arguing that well you know according to the uh, US or the U- universal code of military conduct that uh, you know such and such a, a clause states that you are you've deserted desertion is a crime that uh, in addition uh, You have people who may have, uh, say, conscientious uh, or other objectives to serving in Iraq uh, that they have to be opposed to all wars. So Now, you're not opposed to all wars, so you're not a conscientious objector. So how do you, in that context, uh, how do you address those points?
6: Well, in that context, yeah, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, yes, there is an article for desertion, um, which is punishable by death. It even says that in the article itself, Article 85 uh it's um I would put it as uh everyone who gets on the bandwagon i'd have to say in a, in a big part is probably uh the right wing nuts in a sense because there's been polls across Canada for uh, us to be allowed to stay in Canada, and then polls have came back in our favor i don't think one hasn't um so it's a uh it, it's a far cry in a sense you know it's it's making us look like uh criminals which were not but uh, if that's the approach then you have to figure out a counter approach
2: mm-hmm. now what would happen to you if uh, you were to go back to the united states uh, if you were sent back if uh, you know the the conservative government uh, got their way and you were sent back what do you anticipate would
6: happen to you I, I don't know the full score of things. I don't think anyone would know until I was back. Of course, you go back into military control, you get uh, sent to a court-martial, and then no telling what could happen after that. It could be years in prison, it could be the death pen, a death penalty of sorts. Uh, do I think that would happen? No. I think a lot more likely just years in prison. But, uh, you know, that's not even just all of it. You know, then you're deemed as a, as a felon. So it means you can't go across international borders. You can't do many things. So there's lots more that comes with that than just uh, years in prison. It could be death. It could be uh, you could be made an example out of in the military. This is what will happen if we catch you deserting, or this is what the possibility. But I don't think anyone knows the full score of that until a person gets sent back. I mean, there has been two individuals that have. Uh, but, as far as military is concerned, in a big way, they were considered just a wall, you know not as classified as a deserter because they of course left before they went to Iraq that there hasn 't yet been a veteran who fought in Iraq that has went back to the United States or been sent back, of course, Rodney Watson, who they tried and who is now in sanctuary in Vancouver, uh, I think that puts a big uh, issue on it just in itself, as you know people us that have went and fought and you have seen the other side of things in a big hole the last thing you're going to do is come to a country, give it everything you have, and fight the hardest to stay here to turn around and walk back. You
2: know, you, you, you mentioned Rodney Watson, who's just spent uh, a year in sanctuary uh, in Vancouver. Um, are there any uh, specific differences between you, yourself and, and Rodney? I mean, you both served in Iraq.
6: I don't think there's too many differences, no. I uh, You know, I don't particularly know what happened in the legal process of Rodney's case or or any of that. But I know as far as uh, all of us are in the same boat, well, yes. I mean, that could be quite possible that it would happen to me. It could happen to anyone who's based in Toronto. I mean, the outcome is very... uh, As far as I I know, the two individuals that went back to the States could have did that as well. I mean, it's... uh, it, it, it's sort of a little concerning as far as the points of, you know, now when someone goes to get deported, how are they going to treat that person rather than give them the opportunity so where they could go into sanctuary. So there's a lot of what ifs, but we don't know yet because we ain't came to that point.
2: Now, there is uh, a vote coming up in the House of Commons, and and this would be the third vote on uh, the issue of, of Iraq war resistors. Um, there was uh, two already that went for allowing resistors or deserters like yourself to stay in canada and that now there's this third vote coming up um is there anything different about this uh,
6: vote and and what do you would you say are the stakes if it shouldn't go your way well the um the first two boat, uh, votes were non-binding, so of course that means the government didn't have to act on them, which they were passed on both uh, both times, both occasions, by all opposition parties. Now, I don't know, um, with this one, it's a private member's bill, which means things are done, I guess, a little bit more privately with private... Uh, but with that, I mean, the stakes are very high, because if we lose that, where do we go next and what avenue do we go? I mean, I'm not a... Uh, on any of the campaign's executive boards or exactly what route to take next but uh, I'm sure that uh, people are going quite crazy on it now so I don't know what that what will happen if that vote does not pass Uh, I know as far as history and as far as how many private members bills have passed it's quite scarce just for the percentage but we have to stay in good hopes
2: yeah um, finally the the the, the government and and their defenders will argue that the U.S. is a democratic country, and uh, you know why don't you just plead your case to to them if if you if you are say have a a
6: valid argument and, and what would you say to that? Well, I would say that uh, I would be in prison until that point, regardless, and I don't think I should have to stay one day in jail for not wanting to go killing innocent people. I mean, that's the overall complete point of it Um, and as far as the United States military being a democracy I would say some would consider that very um, lenient to even say that more of on a rogue state if you asked me and I would say most would say that especially professors and people within law that I mean the military can pretty well do what it wants as it wishes it's not a a, a civilian matter or a, a civil matter at that
2: Well, on that note, I want to thank you, Joshua, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us, and I hope uh, things go your way uh, in the coming weeks and months. Let's hope so. (laughs) And that was Joshua Key, Iraq War deserter and author, speaking to Alert Recently in Winnipeg.
1: Venezuelans go to the polls next week in what is widely regarded as crucial parliamentary elections. Alert contacted CD Collective member James Petrus at his home in Binghamton, New York, to talk about these elections. Petrus is the author of over 70 books and a world-renowned expert on the politics of Latin America. Welcome to Alert, James Petrus. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thanks for the invitation, Ashley. It's a pleasure to be on this program.
1: To begin this interview, we would like to ask you, what's at stake in these elections and why do they matter?
3: Uh, They matter for several reasons, including uh, for the process of transformation in Venezuela, but also have importance for the rest of Latin America. Uh, Let me explain very briefly. Uh, Venezuela has been in the process of increasing... uh, social consumption among a large swath of the population it also has been socializing strategic and uh, enterprises and instituting worker-controlled factories uh... that's what's clearly at stake if the uh, socialist party of venezuela the party of president chavez wins we can uh predict that it will continue on this uh, in this direction of progressive change. If they lose the elections, uh, it's likely that the opposition will use the uh, outcome to try to paralyze any future government initiatives and push the government in the direction of uh, being less uh, principled in its dealings with uh, with U.S. Uh, war efforts in the Middle East and elsewhere, so a great deal is at stake internally. Externally, uh, the change process, the socialist changes in Venezuela, have been a pressure on center left governments in Latin America, at least in the sense of uh, creating uh, uh, an alternative to uh, right wing policies and encouraging people's movements in Latin America to press for greater social welfare programs in Brazil, Argentina, and elsewhere. So I think the the uh, pressure from Venezuela in a positive direction is also at stake in these elections.
1: So starting about six months ago, as a lead-up to this election, there has been a massive media blitz to denigrate Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution. Is there any evidence of blatant U.S. government support for the opposition forces in Venezuela? And if so, what form does it take?
3: Yes, uh, the editor of the English uh, Daily, uh, Ava Gollinger, has provided a great deal of evidence citing U.S. AID documents and and, uh, the, uh, uh, the Endowment for Democracy and other U.S agencies have poured in at least $50 million into uh, NGOs, non-government organizations, which act as fronts for the right-wing parties. Uh, they have also been uh, heavily engaged in subsidizing the media. Uh, that's uh, Those two areas have been very important. Also, U.S. Uh, leadership training programs have been engaged in uh, putting together teams to go into the poor neighborhoods and uh, trying to build up a grassroots base, uh, exploiting local inefficiencies in the uh, implementation of government policy. So the uh, U.S. has played a major role, and the government has not uh, put any constraints on this external funding, which is interfering in the domestic elections.
1: So the U.S. media has been making the case that the Venezuelan economy uh, is in a rut, that inflation is out of control, that the regime is riddled with corruption, and that crime is rampant. What's your take on these criticisms?
3: Well, the economy has grown at near double-digit uh, uh, growth rate since about uh, the middle of two thousand and three up until the world recession uh... and beginning in the middle of two thousand and eight uh... venezuela went into a recession had negative growth rates in two thousand and nine and the first quarter of two thousand and ten but uh... the evidence uh... is building up that uh... the, the economy is stabilized in the uh in the uh, third quarter coming on now, and uh, we will probably see some slight growth in the uh, fourth quarter of this year. So it seems as if uh, Venezuela is coming out of the recession uh, at this moment. Now, as far as the other accusations, uh, Venezuela has had problems with corruption in its history. It's an oil a rent-producing oil, uh, exporting economy, and uh, there is a good deal to be said about the uh, lack of uh, ethics in some of the government ministries, but that goes back a long time. The opposition, uh, particularly in the uh, two provinces where they uh, control the governorship, has been blighted with corruption. The... uh, president of Venezuela and one of the leaders, the ex-president, and uh, Carlos Andres Perez was convicted of an $18 million fraud and uh, was convicted. And so uh, let's put it in historical perspective. There is corruption in Venezuela, but it isn't anything uh, particular to the Chavez government. Uh, The government has made a big effort this year, and thousands of uh, functionaries have been uh, uh, either uh, fired or put on trial in corruption. So there's a major effort to try to clean up, at least in part, some of the uh, historical corruption that exists in uh, Venezuela. Crime is a big problem. And uh, a lot of it is because of the poorest borders with Colombia, where a lot of the uh, narco-traffickers are based and, uh, and where their strongholds are under the, uh, under the uh, pro-U.S. regimes in Colombia. So the narco-business from the U.S. Uh, collaborator regime has spilled over into Venezuela. Now, part of the uh, enforcement problem is that many of the police and officials themselves have been corrupted by the flow of drug money. But uh, the government in the last year has started a new recruitment process of Bolivarian Police Department, which uh, has been a very uh, highly successful experimental program, and they are beginning to Occupy a lot of the security posts and working with uh, community organizations, uh, and this is a very promising development. In some of the experimental neighborhoods in poor, uh, poor uh, regions of the country, the, these uh, new police uh, working with community organizations have been very successful, and crime rates have declined up to 60%. So there's some hope that this uh, transformation of the police department, the growth of community-based crime control uh, organizations will make a major impact. Nevertheless, I think the uh, right-wing opposition is exploiting the crime rate. The media are publicizing any uh, crime that occurs and blaming the government for it. So it may play a role in, the, uh, in some of the voting results in some of the high-crime areas.
1: Speaking of the voting, um, for our last question, do you have a prediction for the outcome of this election?
3: Well, I, I would predict the government will win a majority of the seats in the National Assembly. I'm fairly certain of that because of the tremendous uh, benefits that have accrued to uh, 60% of the lower-income sectors of the population. It's going to be a very polarized vote. The middle class and upper class will vote overwhelmingly for the right, and uh, the poorest sections in the working class areas will vote uh, with the socialists. There is a a group in the middle, which we're not sure of, uh, lower middle class people, uh, (coughs) shopkeepers and others. Who uh, can go either way? So the question is whether the left will get the two-thirds majority, which Chavez is calling for in these elections, uh, to uh, speed the way for any uh, new legislation. Uh, I think it's going to be very hard to get 66 percent or 67 percent of the vote. So between a sure 50 and a 67 percent. I would guess the government will get something between uh, 55 and 65% of the vote and probably something like uh, 60% of the assembly seats in the election.
1: Well, that's all the time that we have. So thanks for doing this, Jim. As always, we appreciate your insights.
3: Well, it's a pleasure, Ashley. And if I get a chance to come out there, I'd like to participate live on the program after eating some bony perch from a (laughs) Saigonic summer villa.
1: (laughs) I've been in conversation with James Petrus, well-known author and expert on the politics of Latin America.
3: Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye.
5: Hi, this is Mitch Panolik. This is Music is the Weapon. I thought we'd start looking backward a little bit instead of a little bit forward. Recently, I had the really unique experience of being called an old dinosaur. And, you know, I kind of liked it because I'm a folk music person, and folk music is a living form, but you look back, and then you look at the present, and then you look at the future. And it's all kind of tied into into one sort of social process, and uh, I love it very much. Here's a wonderful song about exactly that process. Here is PsyCon.
7: Now don't you think it's crazy, this old world and its ways? Whoever thought the 60s would be called the good old days? But like the weavers sang to us, wasn't that a time When we raised our hands and voices on the line? And we all sang bread and roses, Joe Hill Union made. We linked our arms and told each other, we are not afraid. Solidarity forever would go rolling through the hall. We shall overcome together, long and all. The more I study history, the more I seem to find That in every generation there were times just like that time When folks like you and me who thought that they were all alone Within this honored movement found a home And they all sang bread and roses, Joe Hill and Union made they linked their arms and told each other we are not afraid solidarity forever would go ruling through the whole we shall overcome together one and all and though each generation fears that it may be the last our presence here is witness to the power of the past and just as we have drawn our strength from those who now are gone younger hands will take our work and carry on and, and they'll all sing bread and roses Joe Hill and Union made they'll link their arms and tell each other we are not afraid solidarity forever will go We shall overcome together, one and all. We shall overcome together, one and all.
5: That was Sai Khan with they all sang bread and roses. And because he brought up these songs, I thought maybe we ought to hear a few of the songs that he brought up. So here is Bread and Roses. <laughs>
8: Come marching, marching In the beauty of the day A million darkened kitchens A thousand millofts gray Are touched with all the radiance That a sudden sun discloses For the people hear us singing Bread and roses, bread and rose As we come marching, marching, we battle too for men, for they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Starve as well as bodies give us bread, but give us roses as we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead go crying through our singing their ancient song for bread small and love and beauty their drudging spirits new yes it is bread we fight for but we fight for roses too as we come marching marching we bring the greater days for the rising of the women Means the rising of the race No more the drudge and idler Tend that toil where one reposes But a sharing of life's glories Bread and roses, bread and roses
9: Joe says, I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I dead. Says Joe, but I dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die, and standing there big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill. Where workers strike and organise it's there you'll find Joy It's there you'll find joy I dreamed I saw Joy last night alive as you and me says I but Joe You're ten years dead I never died, says he
5: That was Paul Robeson with the classic Joe Hill, and before that, Bobby McGee with Bread and Roses. You know, one of the classic stories uh, that I was taught as a young person, learning folk music, and learning political folk music, because that's really what inspired me and carried me forward, is about how an old woman, who wasn't such an old woman at the time, the company gun thugs came to her house looking to kill her husband. Of course, he wasn't home, but when they left, She ripped the calendar off the wall and wrote out the verses for which side are you on. And that song, of course, has become one of the classic labor songs of all time. Here's the author of that song, Mrs. Florence Reese.
10: Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell which side are you on which side are you on we're starting our good battle we know we're sure to win because we've got the gun thugs a-looking very thin which side are you on which side are you on If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there You'll either be a union man or a thug for
6: J.H. Blair
10: Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Come all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on,
9: which side are you on
10: My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son And I'll stick with the union till every battle's won Which side are you
9: on, which side are you on
10: They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair Which side are you on? Which side
7: are you on?
10: Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man?
9: Which side are you on? Which side are you on?
10: Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize.
3: Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which
9: side are you on?
10: Taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn. But without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the Union makes us strong. Solidarity forever.
5: was Solidarity Forever, the old classic, and before that, Which Side Are You on, the other old classic. And I hope I'm doing a real good job as a dinosaur tonight playing these old, old songs because I think they really uh, are the inspiration of of my generation. And then, of course, you know, all of these songs that you've heard tonight, every single one of them, are all historically set into the 1960s, and the 1950s but all before the advent of the Vietnam War. Vietnam threw up a whole, another whole body of music, it threw up rock and roll in a way that no one ever suspected, and it threw up a lot of great songs. But my generation got politicized before that, and we had great songs, and there were wonderful things. And then, of course, folks, there was always the Civil Rights Movement.
10: Another song that I heard down there I was riding down the road With a gang of young people And for about an hour They'd been harmonizing on one song after another Suddenly one of them Bust loose with a song I'd never heard before If you miss me at the back of the bus You can't find me nowhere Oh, come on over to the front of the bus I'll be riding up there I'll be riding up there, I'll be riding up there, oh come on over to the front of the bus, I'll be riding up there. If you miss me on the picket line, you can't find me nowhere. Oh come on over to the city jail. I'll be roamin' over there, I'll be roamin' over there, I'll be roamin' over there, oh Come on over to the city jail, I'll be going over there. One of the young people had just come down from Cairo, Illinois, where they'd had a drive to desegregate the municipal swimming pool. If you miss me in the Mississippi River, you can't find me nowhere. Oh. Come on over to the swimming pool, I'll be swimming right there. I'll be swimming right there. Oh. I'll be Oh, here's a verse that was prophetic, came true. I heard it in October and many places it came true in November. Just a start. If you miss me in the cotton field, you can't find me nowhere. Oh, come on over to the courthouse, I'll be voting right there. I'll be voting right there. Oh, I'll be voting right there. Oh, come on over to the courthouse. I'll be voting right there. If you miss me at the back of the bus, you can't find me nowhere. Oh, come on over to the front of the bus. I'll be riding up there, oh, I'll be riding up there, oh, I'll be riding up there, oh, come on over to the front of the bus, I'll be riding up there.
5: That was Mr. Peter Seeger with If You Miss Me at the Back of the Bus. And that's it for this week, folks. We'll see you next week. Solidarity.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here the same time next week. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
2: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Seven Days Around the Left was prepared by Ben Wood. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolok. I'm Michael Welch.
1: And I'm Ashley Titterton. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.